Amen. Well, as I mentioned in my prayer, we are this morning going to look at the doctrine of regeneration. As I mentioned last week, we're taking a break and there was a variety of topics that we're going to look at in the really probably months ahead, at least a couple of months, uh, next couple of months. So we considered just briefly the idea of biblical faith last week. This morning, we're going to look at the doctrine of regeneration. In three weeks, we're going to look at some more practical issues. I mean, this is very practical, uh, regeneration, but some more practical issues. We'll look at the body life and some issues of how we relate to one another as Christ's body. Down the road, I think I mentioned before, we'll look at the Christian and social media and a few other topics. Um, We have for the next couple of weeks, beginning next week, uh, Pastor Bigelow is going to be uh, bringing us the word. And so we're going to be anticipating that as well. But this morning, I want to just pull the car over, as it were, for just a little while and consider a a doctrine that we're very familiar with. We we hear it spoken of all the time, Uh, but hopefully maybe we can think a bit more clearly about it. And if it is something we do think clearly about, then we'll just be reminded of the glories of God's grace to us in giving us spiritual life in His Son. And of course, I'm talking about the doctrine of regeneration, but more popularly known, and not only popularly, but also used in scripture, the idea of being born again, a born again Christian. What does that mean to be born again? That's certainly a term that's used uh, commonly among those who want to speak Christianese, those who identify themselves as Christians. They say they are a born again Christian. And particularly in our American culture, that's very popular to say. However, it is a term I think you might agree with me that is largely not understood with clarity, at least because of the way that it's spoken about And very often because of the lives of those who claim to be born-again believers or born-again Christians. And you wonder if they understand what that means. Let me give you just a few examples of this. Uh, From a Barna poll taken years ago, uh, he noted this through some surveys. That 25% of professing born-again Christians believe that eventually all will be saved. That is the heresy of universalism. It is the idea that there is ultimately no eternal punishment, but there will be redemption applied to every person. A 43% of those who identified as being born again believe that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. They worship the same God. Of course, to say that is to deny that Jesus himself is God, a distinct person of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet to them, they're unbothered by those kind of theological distinctions and they claim that they're born again and we all just kind of worship the same God they would include the God that the Jews worship too which also denies the deity of Christ in another survey it was concluded that over half of professing born-again people believe that good works played some role in earning salvation in meriting salvation I did a little google search just out of curiosity and I forget exactly what I put in, but to find out of those who are in the entertainment industry who identify as being born again, what they might have to say, what words of wisdom might come from them. I found that Sex and the City star, John Corbett, uh, I don't know who he is, but I, I have heard of that show. He says, you don't have to go to church to be born again. That much is true. But he goes on to say that he became born again in 1986 after reading the Bible. And he says this, quote, according to the site, Me and the Lord, we're on good terms. I travel a lot, and there's a little Catholic church that I go to once in a while, but I haven't found a church that I like to go to. Church bums me out. I just read the Bible and pray. Uh, More popularly, U2's Bono, who has uh, many uh, friendly statements uh, towards Christianity, and, and I ultimately don't know where he is, but he says this. U2's Bono says his Christianity fuels his humanitarian work. He says, I wish to begin again on a daily basis. To be born again every day is something that I try to do, and I'm deadly serious about that. Certainly not reflecting an understanding of the biblical doctrine there. Uh, one more. Ex-boyfriend Lindell Locke, who was, I guess, a boyfriend of Beyonce, a said that she has strong Christian beliefs, and he confessed that even pre-superstardom, meaning Beyonce, uh, that she didn't believe in sex before marriage. But Bay said she doesn't reaffirm her faith in church. She says this, The ocean makes me feel really small, and it makes me put my whole life in perspective. 
It humbles you and makes you feel almost like you've been baptized. I feel born again when I get out of the ocean. So these are just some general popular ideas of the way that the idea of being born again is understood by those in the media and just by Barna polls that are just throughout the nation. There's a gross misunderstanding of what the biblical teaching is then about being born again or about regeneration. There's much of professing Christianity who shows no understanding of even basic Christian doctrine related to the gospel or to the nature of God, and yet they claim to have experienced a true work of the Holy Spirit transforming them into a new creature, uniting them to Christ, producing faith and repentance, and so forth. But it's absolutely crucial that we, really, that we understand and we think clearly about this because nobody is a Christian who is not born again. Nobody is a Christian who has not experienced this sovereign work of God, this life-giving power of the Holy Spirit inside one that produces faith and life and trust in Christ and a life then that displays that. So it's crucial to understand what Jesus means when he said, for example, to Nicodemus, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven, which he mentions in John chapter 3. And more importantly, on an individual level, it's crucial that we understand that for our own lives. How do we know in our own lives that we have experienced this reality, this grace of the Holy Spirit? Well, there's no way we're going to cover everything in detail, of course. So this is meant to be really a, a broad look at the idea of what it means to be born again as it's presented to us in Scripture. Let me begin by noting that the technical term for being born again is, I've already mentioned it, regeneration. Regeneration. That's not only a theological term, although it is that. But it is a term that's specifically mentioned in Scripture. It's mentioned in Scripture two times. It's mentioned in Matthew uh, chapter 19, verse 28, and it's mentioned in the book of Titus, Titus 3, 5, used in different ways and yet uh, in similar ways. Let's just briefly look at those two uses. So Matthew 19, 28. In Matthew 19, 28, now we cover that. I'm sure you remember it. You've listened to this sermon many times over. It was a blessing to your soul when we covered this a few years ago. But in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says this at the end of the chapter, speaking to his disciples, he says, truly, I say to you that you have followed me, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is here referring to a future time, a time that is not yet even not only not yet for them, but not yet for us. It's a time anticipated for the future. It's a prophetic anticipation here. It is a time that he describes as in the regeneration, in the regeneration or in the renewal in some sense, that there's going to be some change that will be global, that will affect the world, and that will include, in this case, the disciples sitting on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. It is a time when Christ will return in his power and glory, where he will sit on the throne of David, where he will rule on the earth over a people in fulfillment of promises that he gave to his people, the nation of Israel. There's not a whole lot said about that time in the New Testament, but there's a great deal said in the prophets as they anticipated this future time. Let me give you just a few examples in which it's described. And we're not going to belabor this. I just want you to hear it. And these are passages that you're familiar with. In Isaiah chapter 11, there's anticipation of this one who's going to come from the root of Jesse. He's going to be endowed in a unique way with the fullness of the Spirit and expression of the Holy Spirit. And then the writer, or Isaiah, anticipates this time after he describes this person, this future coming, the Messiah, ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ... He then describes at another period of time that's going to be the fruit of his work, that's going to be the ultimate fulfillment of some of these promises related to Israel and the rule of this Messiah over his people. And he says in verse 6, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fat lean together, and the little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze 
their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of a cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. It's a beautiful picture of a time where on the very earth in which we now stand, there will be these great changes, and the curse of the sin will be removed in its full effects, and there will be even the the uh, hostility that exists between humans and animals that could cause, cause harm will be taken away and there will be harmony between man and creature and between man and God. And worship will again be the dominant reality of those who dwell on the earth. This is a glorious and a wonderful time describing this kingdom that is to come. Let me give you just one more example out of the book of Isaiah. There's, there's other places we could go to, but in Isaiah chapter 65... He says this, and again combining many promises of the Lord together. He says, For behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered. Verse 17 of Isaiah 65. Or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. And I also will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her a voice of weeping. And the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. And they will build houses and inhabit them. And they will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. And so forth. In other words, there is a time that's coming that we're not yet in. In which there are elements described of this future age which are not true of the eternal state. But they are true of this other age, this age in which the promised heir of David's throne sits on that throne over a people who worship in spirit and in truth, in which the effects of the curse are removed and greatly mitigated, and there is harmony and peace on the planet Earth. That is described in one phrase by Jesus in Matthew 19 as in the regeneration, in this time of renewal. There's another place that he uses this term, and that's in Titus 3.5. In Titus 3.5. And, and there he uses it in a manner that's closer to the way that we often understand it. Speaking of this spiritual renewal, this spiritual change that happens in the life of a child of God. In Titus 3.5 he says this. Well, beginning actually in verse 4, he says, but when the, And when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Through Jesus Christ our Savior. This is the regeneration that happens individually in the life of of a Christian by the work of the Holy Spirit in which there is a renewal, a change of nature, a cleansing of nature that brings about a change in their life. It's a spiritual cleansing that removes the original filth and corruption and power of sin and it enables a believer who has undergone this change to now live in a way that is pleasing to God through their faith in Christ and through a nature that has experienced this new life. In fact, he described them in verse 3, if you're there, of Titus chapter 3, of saying, We were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. In other words, he's saying that's what you were in an unregenerate state before experiencing this washing and this renewal, this regeneration by the Holy Spirit. But now you are in in a new state and you live in conformity with 
God's will. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable and so on. So in these two places, then, there is this idea of regeneration of this newness that comes about. It is a new life. It is a new beginning. It is marked by righteousness and holiness. It is marked as a work of the Holy Spirit. It is marked as the fruit of the work of Christ as Messiah and as Redeemer. It is a work that has a global aspect, a future age aspect to it. And it is a work that happens in the individual that actually prepares them for life in that age, ultimately. A life to be in the presence of God And to worship him forever. So this is the term as it's used in scripture. Now there's other ways that regeneration is talked about. Or being born again is talked about. Where the actual word itself is not used. Let me just mention a few of them. And I'm going to come back to some of these later. So just listen. In 2 Corinthians 5.17. He refers to it as being a new creation. A new creation. In Ephesians 2.5, he describes it this way, that those who have been made alive together with Christ. In Ephesians 4.24, he speaks of those who have been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In 1 Peter 1.3, he uses the term born again. In Romans 6.13, he says of those who have been born again, they have been brought from death to life, spiritual death to a place of spiritual life. In 2 Peter 1.4, he says that we have, or those who have been born again, have become partakers of the divine nature. In Colossians 1.13, last one, he says that those who have experienced this life in Christ have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. All of these are different ways to refer and that Scripture speaks about this monumental change that happens within the believer when they have experienced the reality of regeneration, new life in Christ. Now let me just mention briefly, there are two ways that this has been understood in the big picture of the church. There's a broad way, and this is how much of the early church understood this and And it is in this way. They would include in the idea of regeneration not only this initial act, not only that moment at which God brings that sinner from a place of spiritual death to spiritual life, but then they would include in the definition everything about that life that happens subsequent to that moment. So in other words, they would include not only the gift of life, but that whole process of renewal that happens in the life of a believer. And so they would call the whole life of the believer, they would put under the doctrine of regeneration. They would include, again, the process of renewal. Some in the early church understood it this way. Many did. The Roman Catholic Church has understood it this way, along, again, with some of the early reformers. Uh, This moment of life within the Roman Catholic Church was said to begin at regeneration. Some of you grew up in the Catholic Church. You know that. When you were baptized as a child, they taught that you were regenerated. That's why it was absolutely crucial that a child be baptized because it was that regeneration that they experienced through that baptism that if they died in infancy would guarantee that they would be fit for the life to come. But that is then called baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration. And there are other cults and other things that teach that. More narrowly defined, and this is how we'll understand it, and I'll make that case as we go along, as you'll see, is more narrowly. And that limits the idea of regeneration to the initial act of God where he implants in the sinner, the dead sinner, the reality of life. A complete transformation that happens within the sinner, again, bringing them from a place of rebellion to obedience, a place of death to a place of life, a place of darkness to a place of light. Now, that's just to kind of give a big picture. Let's look more specifically at it and note four really key principles in regeneration. Uh, And for there, we'll turn, as you probably expect, to John chapter 3. So if you want, turn over to John chapter 3, and we'll consider this just briefly. John chapter 3. 
It's a well-known passage. This is Jesus' conversation with the religious leader Nicodemus. Nicodemus. And in John chapter 3, he tells us this, that, or John does, the writer, uh, the apostle John, tells us that, that Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, in verse 1, came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, I think actually it's a better translation, is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Everyone who is born of the Spirit. This then is one of the most crucial and well refer- or most well-known passages in which this reality of spiritual life is explained. So let's just look at this passage and I, and I want to pull out four basic truths and then we'll apply it to our own lives. Four basic truths about regeneration that come uh, directly from this passage. Look at verses 3 and 5. And we'll notice the first truth and it is this. Regeneration is necessary. Regeneration is necessary. The gift of new life is necessary. It's what every sinner needs to experience to know the grace of God. In verse 3, he says this. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So there is no middle ground. If one has not been born from above, again, I think is a better Translation, if one is not born from above, born by the Spirit of God, receiving this grace of God, then they cannot enter into his gift of salvation, here the kingdom of God. He says again in verse 5, if one is not born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now remember that when Jesus is saying this, he's speaking to a religious leader of the nation of Israel. In other words, he's speaking to a Highly committed, highly knowledgeable, highly experienced Jew who is a leader in all matters of religion, of their knowledge of God. And yet, he tells him, essentially, Nicodemus, as of right now, though you assume that you live within the realm of the kingdom of God, you have not really yet experienced that reality. You are outside of God's saving mercy and saving grace. Nicodemus, you need a change that is fundamental to your very person. As fundamental as being born into this world, you need to be born from above. You need to be born from above. Now this is a tremendous thing for him to hear as a Jew and for us to to grasp this. Essentially what he's saying is that you are... Though religious and though achieved much and though you've achieved much in that religion, you're still in need of something, a total transformation. And this at once then brings out the reality of our corruption by nature and the need for God to do something in us, something that we cannot accomplish on our own. In other words, in order to understand the need of regeneration or even Jesus' own declaration of the need of regeneration, it shows us how utterly corrupt we are. That we do not need in ourselves in in order to enter this kingdom. We don't need reformation. We don't need moral improvement. We need to be completely reborn, created again, as it were. Uh, Don't turn there. I'm going to just mention this. But I want to emphasize and remind us, really more of a reminder of the comprehensive nature of, or effects of sin on our nature. The comprehensive effects of sin on our nature. And again, there's many places to go to. Probably the most clear and concise is Ephesians chapter 2. 
Ephesians chapter 2. And remember, in Ephesians chapter 2, he's talking to the church. He's talking to Christians. And he's describing what their state was before the experience of salvation. And he's letting them know from what they have been delivered. And he sums it up in one statement in verse 1. That you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Dead in your trespasses and sin. Dead, of course, having at its very heart uh, this idea that your nature was so corrupt, you're in such a place of spiritual devastation and ruin that it can be described only as death. And in this state of death, you had nothing within you, no spiritual capacity within you to respond to any of God's promises of grace. In fact, everything within you worked against God's mercy and worked in you only destruction and corruption. And the way to to identify that is really, maybe if we broke it up into these three categories, is that this corruption spread to every part of you in your mind, in your affections, and in your will. Every part of what makes you a human is what he's saying was so corrupted by sin that you could only be considered as dead. He says, right at the very beginning, as he describes this death, that you were utterly, that all humanity apart from this grace is corrupted in our affections. Look at what he says. He says in verse 2, you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the spirit of the air, that that is, of the devil, under his influence, in fact, doing his bidding. And he said in verse 3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. In other words, what characterizes a person outside of this experience of regeneration is that we live according to the dictates of our desires. Now the dictates of those desires for some are more extreme than others. The level of sin is more intensely manifest in some than in others. But at the end of the day, what is motivating and what is the impulse, the inward impulse of one who is unregenerate is not anything from the Spirit of God, but is in fact from self, described here as lust, lust of the flesh. In other words, your affections, which should be and were created to be wholly set on God, are wholly set on yourself. He notes next, then, that the will is utterly corrupted. That organ within us, that that capacity within us to make decisions, to reason and act on that reason, to follow a certain course in life, was again utterly corrupted by sin. Not only did we have these lusts of the flesh, which are contrary to righteousness, but they were indulged. These desires were indulged, they were not fought against, they were not put to death for the glory of God, but they were indulged in to the pleasure of the sinner, however they chose to do so. He says that your mind was utterly corrupt. He says they were indulged, he motes, the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath. That means the reasoning, the thinking All of the mental, moral capacities of the sinner are so infected by sin, again, that they could only be described as death, and this death is complete. Affecting the mind, affecting the affections, and affecting the will. In theology, that's sometimes described as total depravity or total inability or other terms. It means that every part of our being is affected by sin, and we are totally unable to be pleasing to God And for that matter, to turn to God and to in any way, even of our own, receive even His grace, even His mercy. This is your condition. This is my condition. This is the condition of all men outside of sin. This is, in fact, one of the effects of God's own promise to Adam, or warning, you could say, to Adam in the garden when He said, The day that you eat of this fruit, you will, you'll die. You'll die. One of the Realities of that death is a spiritual death. And so when Jesus tells Nicodemus, this ruler, that you must be born again, he is identifying by implication that he is so utterly corrupt as he is, even as a religious leader, that none of what he has done externally will 
accomplish anything for good in relation to him entering the kingdom of God, but that God needs to do something. So, first then, it is necessary that we, a sinner, we too, must be born again. Secondly, notice this, that regeneration is both seen and anticipated in the Old Testament. While the idea of regeneration and the idea of the new birth is something that really explodes and is unfolded in a much more comprehensive way uh, in the New Testament with the appearing of Christ, it was not absent to the understanding uh, to the Old Testament saint. The Old Testament saint understood at the very base level of our existence that we had inherited sin. David famously said, In Psalm 51, verse 5, you'll remember, do you remember the statement? In sin, my mother conceived me. He acknowledged that at the very beginning of his life, his being brought into existence as a man, that it was, or he had, the reality of sin that defined him, that corrupted his entire nature, and that he needed cleansing from God. He needed cleansing from God. This is repeated in other places. Even after the flood in Genesis 8.21, it speaks of the intent and the desires of man's heart, man's heart being only evil continually. So they understood that something needed to happen within man. Let me give you just a couple of verses uh, on this point. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Uh, Moses says this, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. He says, Moreover, he's speaking to the nation of Israel that had been delivered from Egypt, now the second generation ready to enter into the land of Canaan. Moses said this in verse 6, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind or with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. So that you may live. In other words, he's telling them that what you need to happen in order to love God and to do all of these commandments, which he is commanding you this day, and that he has commanded them, requires God to do something within them, here pictured under this language of being circumcised in the heart. Circumcision itself was a sign that showed at the very beginning of life, at the very place where conception takes place of new life, there needed to be a cleansing. There needed to be a removal of the corruption of sin. That's what circumcision itself pictured uh, in part. And so they understood that. They understood this base level of sin that all existed or came into this world in and that there needed to be some kind of change. This is ultimately, or probably most clearly pictured, in the anticipation of the new covenant itself. He says in Ezekiel 36, and again, just let me mention this. You don't have to bounce around. He looks forward to this time in which this spiritual realities are going to be true for the whole nation. And he says, I'll sprinkle with clean water. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness, from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone i.e. that you have by nature from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances that is in fact the passage that Jesus is reflecting in his conversation with Nicodemus so the first thing then is that Because of our corruption, regeneration is necessary. Regeneration was anticipated and understood in the Old Testament. And even as Ezekiel anticipated and Jesus makes clear, regeneration is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. It's a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Look what he says in verse 5. Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You must be born of the Spirit. The fancy word for that is it's monergistic. That means that God alone is the one who acts in regeneration. You as a sinner and I as a sinner can do nothing within ourselves to bring about this life. We can do nothing within ourselves to create life. If life is to come, 
it is to come from the sovereign hand of God. None of you in this room had any decision, any conscious choice, had any part of the matter to be born. You simply were born. You were brought into existence, ultimately, in one sense you could say, by the will of your parents. In salvation, the same is true. That in this birth of spiritual life, you have, in one sense, uh, no part in the matter. The sinner is passive. It is a work that God does by his own choice and by his own will. By his own sovereign good pleasure. So while it is something that needs to happen, and Jesus tells that to Nicodemus, it is something that he cannot bring about on his own. It's something that God must do. And when he does, it is instantaneous and it is complete. Let me notice a couple other things. Regeneration then is a sovereign work of God. It's something he creates. It's a birth he brings about. Regeneration also, we would note, precedes faith. Now, that's kind of a tricky way to say it, because when we say that it precedes faith, we mean that more in terms of our understanding of the logic of how God brings about salvation. In reality, it's instantaneous. It all happens at the same time. But faith, then, is a result of regeneration. Notice what he says again. He says in verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And again, unless you are born of water and spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And then he gives this illustration. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. That's pretty striking. Why does he give that illustration? What is he communicating there? Well, you walk outside and you walk outside on a spring day and you look at the trees and what do you see in the trees? When the wind is blowing, you see leaves moving back and forth. You see branches uh, moving back and forth. And by that happening, you can see the wind is blowing this direction or the wind is blowing that direction. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. You don't know what direction it will take next. But you can see the effects of it. And Jesus is saying in the same way, those who are born of the Spirit are known because of the effects of that in the life of those who have been born again. What are the effects in the life of those who have been born again? He identifies two. One, he says then, that they will believe in the testimony of God towards Christ, of Christ. He says, as a matter of fact, he says to Nicodemus, you're not understanding these things, right? Because he had not yet been born again. But he says, we speak of what we know in verse 11, testify of what we've seen. You do not accept our testimony. Why? Because he's still in a place of spiritual death. But to the one who has accepted the testimony of Christ, he is the one who believes in verse 15 and will inherit in him eternal life. Will have in him eternal life. So what is the one that marks the one who's entered the kingdom of God. What are the effects of the Spirit in giving new life? It is faith in the Son of God. Whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. He identifies another effect in verse 21. He who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. In other words, having been worked by God, having their origin in God, from God. So what are the two things What are the effects of this moving of the Spirit illustrated by the wind in the life of a sinner? It is belief in Christ and it is a life of righteousness. Belief in Christ and a life of righteousness. John unfolds that throughout all of the gospel and then in his epistle. How do you know if you've been born again? The first way to detect that or in anyone is do you believe God's witness to his son Christ? Do you believe God's witness about your need for salvation and have you trusted in his provision? And secondly, has this belief actually demonstrated itself in a transformed life that loves righteousness? It's pretty simple. It's not difficult, although it is profound. And that is always the way that it is presented or consistently how it's presented in Scripture. That God does something in the sinner And the fruit of that out of the sinner are those two things. Faith in Christ 
and the life of righteousness. Now let me note one other thing here. That regeneration makes God's call to the elect effectual and certain. This is sometimes referred to as irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. Now, that does not mean, as some think about irresistible grace, they think of it in this way, and they've heard it preached. Maybe this is you. The sinner is holding on tight to sin and has no desire to believe in God. But God is going to be victorious, and he's going to drag that sinner into the graces of Christ because God has elected him. Now, there is an element of truth in that, in the sense of that God will make certain, no matter how rebellious the sinner is, Uh, To come to faith in Christ. But the reality of or the certainty of the sinner coming to Christ and responding to the grace of God that is offered in his son is not the picture of the sinner coming, kicking and screaming. But it is of a sinner coming who has through the gift of new life seen the glory of Christ, understood their sin sees in Christ all that their soul desires and then seeks him and comes to him willingly. Let me illustrate it in this way. Jesus told the leaders of the Jews in Matthew chapter 23, in Matthew 23 verse 37, he says, How often did I, like a mother hen, come and want to gather you to myself? gather you into my kingdom, gather you so that you could experience all the blessings of the kingdom that I have come to give. And he says, and yet you were, do you know what he says next? Unwilling. You were unwilling. You were unwilling to respond to my ministry. You were unwilling to humble yourself to respond to my teaching. You were unwilling to listen to my words. You were unwilling to believe in the testimony of my works. You were unwilling to believe even the testimony of Moses and the own scriptures in which you think you have life. He said, but these bear witness of me and you won't receive that witness. You are unwilling. And ultimately, at the heart of every unregenerate sinner, there is an unwillingness to believe the testimony of the Father toward His Son. That's you and me, each one of us. Some may be a reality right this very moment. All of us a reality at some point in our life before experiencing the gift of life. There is an unwillingness of the sinner to come to Christ. It is not that God is somehow looking out from his throne in heaven and saying, well, some would be willing, but I didn't choose them. And so therefore, I'm going to keep them away. I'm never really going to reveal myself. No, at the heart of every unbelieving sinner, of unregenerate sinner, is a spiritual resistance to the truth of God that makes them unwilling, and in fact, in the language of Paul in Romans 8, hostile to God hostile to his word, hostile to his righteousness, rejecting his word, rejecting his testimony of self, unwilling to come. But in the miracle of regeneration, in the gift of new life, God makes the unwilling sinner willing. Not only willing, but even desiring to seek after Christ. He, in the gift of life, produces a hungering and thirsting after God's salvation. A desire to be reconciled to the God from whom we're estranged by our own sin. It is a desire then to see in Christ and to trust in Christ and receive from the gift of grace in Christ every good blessing that God has promised in him. The soul of a regenerate sinner sees Christ in a new light and longs for him and wants to be with him. So when God makes certain that those who will come will come, he doesn't drag the unbelieving sinner against their will. He, in fact, changes the spiritual reality so that their will that was unwilling becomes willing, becomes desiring of Christ. Now, we won't go there just for time's sake, but one of the the clearest uh, expressions of this is in John chapter 6. When Jesus says, all whom the Father gives to me will come to me. And again, he says, I think it's around verse 44, that the one who comes to him is the one who has learned from the Father as the prophets anticipated. 
And again, that illustrates the fact that first it is a work that God does in the sinner. And then when God does that work, it makes them willing and believing in Christ. And what do they see in Christ? They see everything the soul desires. But I'm going to mention that at the end. Just one point uh, more on this, that it can never be undone. When someone is regenerate, they never can become unregenerate. So, for example, the Catholic doctrine that somehow somebody could be regenerate at birth and yet commit a sin that could forever exclude them from the kingdom of God is to teach that a regenerate sinner could somehow be in hell. And that is utterly opposed to the truth of Scripture. When someone is a child of God in truth and has experienced this grace of God in truth, that never can be lost. One can never be not a child of God. One can never enter into a state of unregeneracy, if we could put it that way. There is, however, and I'll just note this in passing, in the regenerate sinner, two principles that are working. Two principles that are working. It's not two people. We're not schizophrenic if you're a believer. There's not two complete persons, two entities defined as a person that are inside of you. There are, in fact, however, two realities that are true of the believing sinner, of the regenerate sinner. There is one reality that is true, that as I mentioned earlier, that to be born again you are a new creature. But then there is another reality that Scripture defines as the flesh. There is the principle of sin. There is remaining sin in the life of a believer. So that if someone is a regenerate believer, you are engaged in a spiritual battle. You're engaged in a spiritual battle. That means that you now have within you a struggle against sin, remaining sin. That means you do still have lust and desires in you that can be a temptation that are unholy and unrighteous. It do mean, does mean you have attitudes and thinking that are unrighteous that are still within you. And this process then that is begun at regeneration is of a constant renewal throughout life in which the expression of that new life increases and matures and it grows and it becomes more and more until its final realization when we're with Christ and we shall see him as he is because we will be like him. That's the end, the ultimate expression and full realization of this new life in Christ. But until then, there is a battle. Uh, I've often said... And I'm sure you have thought this yourself, many of you. But if you're, if you're looking at someone and sometimes you can see a, a life that is externally righteous, as it were. In other words, there's no, there's no major observable moral defects or anything. And yet there is a hardness and a coldness to the truth. A lack of humility, a pride. You see this sometimes in circles that promote a kind of legalistic attitude to the Christian life. Uh, There seems to be no struggle with sin. There seems to be no humility that comes from understanding the condition still of sin that is within them that needs to constantly be repented of. That is a person in my own conscience anyway whom I worry much about in terms of whether they've truly experienced the knowledge of Christ. But then you can have another Christian who professes Christ and they may be doing far less uh, exemplary in their walk with Christ, but they're battling sin day in and day out. They're miserable over their failings. They're miserable over the way they bring shame at times to Christ in their attitudes and in their words and their actions. And they're constantly repenting. That, again, to me in my own conscience anyway, affirms to me, well, this person probably does know Christ. They probably are saved. Why? Because they hate the sin that is within them. You see, that is what gives evidence of new life. That there is this battle that takes place in a regenerate person. Because though they have new life in Christ, yet that new life is not yet at a place where it can give full expression because we have not yet received our resurrection bodies. And we are not yet in the presence of God in those bodies. That's yet to come. Now let me mention one other thing here and I want to jump on to the end in a few more minutes. God uses the instrumentality of the word. In other words, God uses the word to bring about this life. Let me give you two passages. 1 Peter 1, 23 says this, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, through the living and enduring 
word of God. Now he had already said in verse 3 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter that they that believers have been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As a matter of fact, he puts it this way. Let me turn there. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In this case, life is directly connected to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has accomplished that life for us who has won from the Father, as it were, or received from the Father, Acts 2.33, the promise of the Spirit that He has now poured out on men. The work of the Spirit then calling men to faith in Himself. And here He says in verse 23, He relates that work to the ministry of the Word of God. In other words, there's an inseparability between the reality of God's giving new life and... The proclamation of the gospel through Scripture. Through Scripture. One has described it this way. I think it's helpful. And I'll I'll just try to make one clarifying statement on that. An old writer said it this way. He said, The ministry of the Word is the vehicle in which the Spirit of God conveys Himself and His grace into the hearts of men, which is done when the words come not in word only, but in power. And in the Holy Ghost. And works effectually. And is the power of God unto salvation. Then faith comes by hearing. Romans 10. And ministers are instruments by whom at least. Men are encouraged to believe. Paul sums that up in scripture in this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says that in the life of those who receive this this call of God, this gift of life in which they believe the gospel, he says that this is what happens, that within them, let me go to 1 Corinthians 2, within them the Spirit does this. The Spirit reveals them, reveals them. In chapter 2, verse 10, for God to us, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit. And he says later that We've received not the spirit of the world, the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Here's the verse, verse 13. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So how does that connection happen? God, the spirit within the sinner, upon hearing the message of Christ, attends those words with power. Intends, uh, attends those words with a spiritual, for a fancy word, efficacy. In other words, it brings about the intended result of faith in the sinner. And therefore, the one who is born again, this all happens at the same time, hears those words as the words of Christ and then believes in the Christ that is presented to them and therefore demonstrates the reality of life, life in him. Now, there's many ways that that... In James, let me just give you this verse. In James 1.18, he says this. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, there's many illustrations of this. Uh, we read one in Acts chapter 9. Remember when Paul was persecuting the Christians and then after he had experienced this vision of Christ or this... This, this interaction, this uh, being confronted with Christ on the Damascus Road. He goes from the same scriptures that he used to persecute Christians. He from them, from them proclaims the reality of Christ as the Messiah. In a more popular sense, C.S. Lewis described his own experience of this in this way. It's interesting. He says, I know very well when, but hardly how. C.S. Lewis is a famous Christian author. There's some places where we would part ways, but nonetheless, he's written some very good works uh, related to Christianity. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this, I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade, Whipsnad, however you pronounce that, one Sunday, sunny morning, and when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. 
This is a, an example of the silent working of the Spirit of God. He simply knows that when he would begin this car journey, he did not believe in Christ as the Son of God. When he ended this car journey, he did believe that he was the Son of God, and his life then bore testimony that that belief was real. Now, C.S. Lewis was an atheist when that transformation had taken place. But it, it at the same time illustrates often what happens to many of you, maybe who grew up in the church and other young people in the church. There's no salvation experience, as it were. There's no great turning from a life of great wickedness to a great life of great righteousness, as it is in some of our lives that got saved later. There, there is just this sort of imperceptible reality that happens in the heart where they grow up believing as a child in a Christian home the things that they're taught. And at some point in their experience, those things begin to grip them at a more real level. And they, more, they begin to understand at a personal level and in a very real sense their own sin, the righteousness of God in Christ. And their life of faith then is just demonstrated by observation as just this continual stream in many cases. But in reality, there was a point where they were moved from death to life. From believing in a uh, just intellectual sense and maybe even a sincere intellectual sense to believing in a way that is manifesting genuine spiritual life. And so sometimes people worry about, you know, was was I didn't have this dramatic experience, am I truly saved? You know, I didn't, I didn't have this sort of Damascus Road experience or like I wasn't like, you know, some mafia drug dealer, you know, on the streets of New York and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm a choir boy and a deacon and doing whatever. Not everybody has that experience. And that's why when we think of the assurance of salvation and in terms of the fruits of regeneration, we look not at a moment, not an event, not at some experience in the past, but we look at the present work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. Are we continually turning from sin? Are we continually trusting Christ? Are we continually desiring to be conformed to His image and hoping in Him? Now, in just a few minutes, I'm going to just quickly read these. We don't have time to go over all of them, but what are some ways then that we can identify the work of regeneration in our heart? Let me mention these briefly. Some of these we've mentioned throughout. One is this. I'm going to mention... Uh, I'm going to mention several. One is there's a change in the way that you view Christ. There's a change in the way that you view Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, don't turn there, we don't have time for that. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the, the, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But then he says in verse 6 in 2 Corinthians 4, That God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. I would just observe this one point. That in the regenerate heart, there is a particular glory of God in the face of Christ, a glory that stirs up affections, a glory of God in the face of Christ that stirs up faith, that stirs up trust, that stirs up obedience, that captures our mind and our affections and our will in a way that we want to know him and we want to trust him and we want to follow him and we want to learn about him. The regenerate heart does not hear about Christ and remain disinterested. The regenerate heart hears about Christ and finds at the deepest place in their soul all that their heart desires. All that they desire and that they find beautiful and lovely and wonderful. And it elicits in the heart of one who's been born again trust and faith and worship. It could be illustrated in this way. Paul, who once hated Christ, could later say, The life I now live by faith, I live by faith, or the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Secondly, there's a change in the things that you value. I mentioned earlier that in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. I think the best way that I've heard that illustrated a way that has stuck with me anyway, 
is that it's as if you, you picture all of the things in your life, all of the things that are in this world, all of the things that surround you. You could even include maybe in this your hopes and your desires and your dreams. And if you were to look at all of those things at one point as an unregenerate believer or an unregenerate person, uh, they have a certain value, a price tag on them. They, they have a certain hold and affection on your desires and on your heart. And then when a person gets saved and they experience this new creature reality, the value on all of those things changes. Things that once were important no longer are as important. Things that seem so valuable and a source of joy no longer have that same pleasure and source of joy. John can put it this way, one way to illustrate this, is that those who love the things of the world, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so those who are regenerate no longer see those things of the world and say, in these things lie my great satisfaction. But they say at the deepest part of their soul, in Christ lies my greatest satisfaction. That the things for which I live and for which I've been saved are not to be found in this world, but they're to be found in the world to come. That the things that I love and can bring me a lasting pleasure that are attended with a peace of conscience and joy of my soul aren't the passing pleasures of this world, but are those things related to righteousness and true expressions of faith. The price tag change. We could see... You know, and uh, kind of in our popular culture, of course, as things downgrade more and more morally, that what is presented is a life of wanton expression and experience of all of our deepest lusts and desires. That's where pleasure lies. That's what we should pursue. But those who have been regenerate said, no, those are the things that bring havoc to my soul and bring havoc to my life. And though I fall and stumble in them sometimes, I hate them and I don't desire them. I desire Christ. And I desire to live righteously. So there's a change in the things that the val- you value. The things you want out of life. And how much importance you put on them. There's a new change in the relationship with scripture. Oh I wish we had time to go through all these. But uh, in scripture as an unbeliever can hear the words of scripture. Can find in them a certain beauty even. And can find in the words of scripture a certain wisdom. And can follow them to a certain degree. But when someone is born again and has experienced regeneration, they find in Scripture the words of life. That's what 1 Peter was talking about. They find in Scripture hope. They find in Scripture the beauty of Christ that their soul longs for. That's why Peter could say right after that section that like newborn babes, we're to long for the pure milk of the word, that by it we might grow in respect to salvation. So there is a new love for Scripture, new taste, new delights that come from the Word of God. Well, there are other things, but we're going to have to end it there. Let me just, before I pray, though, mention just so you can hear it, some other changes. There's a fundamental shift in how you view yourself and sin, and there is ultimately an expression of love for other Christians. How do we know that we've been born again? Well, our love for Christ spills over in our love for other believers. It's not a perfect love, but it is a genuine love. It is a sincere love, and it is a unique love that we have for one another as those who are in the body of Christ. We need to be better, all of us, in living that out, but it is there if we know him. Well, this is then the reality of regeneration. This is the grace of God that he gives to his children, those who are chosen before the foundation of the world. And if you say to yourself, I don't see those realities, those aren't true of me. And then you might say, well, if that's a work that God does and that I can't bring it about, what's the use? I'll just go on my merry way and, you know, whatever happens, whatever is whatever happens. And that would, of course, be the wrong response. I would just give these two exhortations. If you see then that you don't have those realities of spiritual life within you, one would be is to understand the working of God is a mystery. You are always to respond and called upon to respond to the word of God, to the gospel. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but receive the grace of God and salvation. Don't worry about the initiation of it and those type of things. Simply respond to the gospel as it's presented to you and cry out to God for forgiveness. There is another way that you could respond, and that is then, even as you wrestle with your own sin, ask God for the gift. And of course, you'll find at the end, That if you receive Christ, it was even his work by the Spirit that was causing you to ask for that gift. But you are to respond. 
Respond to the gospel, and today if you hear his voice, again, do not harden your heart, but receive the grace that is in Christ. Let me pray, and then we'll wrap it up. Did, was there a hymn that y'all had to sing? Okay, let me pray, and then maybe just sing a verse of it. Okay. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, oh God, that we who know you delight in these, these truths, this wonder and this miracle of grace that you've shown to us to call us out of darkness to light, to transfer us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. May we delight and worship you in gratitude and thankfulness for what you have done for us. And those who are yet outside of this saving grace, I do pray that they would respond to the good news in Christ and know that all who call upon the name of the Lord and believe in your heart, their heart that you have raised him from the dead and have in him accomplished everything related to salvation, that they would believe, that they would trust, and that they would call out to you in true faith and in true repentance. These things we entrust to you to accomplish your goodwill. I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.